Welcome to episode 30 of The Search with Canada Podcast, recorded on Friday the 4th of October 2019. My name is Mark Williams-Cook, and again this week, I am very happy to be joined by Robert Lewis. Hello. Okay. This episode, we are going to be covering the Google User Agent update, uh, what this is and how it might break things and how to check if you're affected. We're going to do a follow-up on Google's change of the nofollow directive to a hint in regard to internal links. And we have actually got some time to do some of Q&A today. So we'll be answering a couple of the questions that were submitted to the podcast. We've had kind of a bitty week this last week in search news. There's been a few updates, nothing major like the obviously the core algorithm update um, that's come in, but there's been a, a few interesting bits I want to talk about as well as our main subjects. So the, the first one on that is yet another update to Google Search Console, which is brilliant. So they're slowly moving everything forward on that. And on the 2nd of October, Google announced that they have actually ported over their change of address tool into Google Search Console. And they've actually published a really nice guide to when to use it and how to use it. So for instance, you should only be using the change of address tool if you're moving actual domain name or if you're moving subdomains. You shouldn't be using it if, for instance, you're just moving your site from HTTP to HTTPS. So it's basically if it's moving almost to another uh, another another property within Search Console. So that's really good because quite a few people, including myself, were a little bit worried that that hadn't come over into the new version of Search Console and they weren't particularly clear about when that might happen. But it has happened um, along with the other da- updates we covered in the last few episodes, like the extra, the, the faster data refresh time. So that's really, really great news. Um, on the September core update, so this just occurred to me as, as I mentioned it, I've been speaking to people again from Systrix and looking at their analysis so far. And one thing they noted was it's actually been this time around really difficult to identify who the losers of this update were in that most of what they're seeing is a a gradual and blanket shift upwards in lots of sites, meaning the, the people that have lost haven't seem to have lost for any particular reason just that the sites around them have moved up um which is which is very interesting and the 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 especially interesting is the reversal as we spoke about the daily mail traffic is it almost seems that they've rolled back whatever part of the algorithm did that because the the increase in traffic is is almost spot on and actually there's some of the daily mail's competitors have actually also increased in search visibility so this means that the Daily Mail hasn't taken that from anyone else. They've all gained more search visibility. Anyway, on to the first thing we wanted to talk about today, which was the Googlebot user agent update. So back in May on episode nine of the podcast, we covered Google's update of their actual Googlebot to what they were calling their evergreen Googlebot. So the, the robot that does Google's crawling and discovers links and web pages for them has historically been 
up until recently quite uh, an old version of Chrome. So basically the robot is viewing the web as if it's on a really old version of Chrome. And this gave some challenges to web developers in terms of it wasn't able to do all of the clever functionality that modern browsers could. So there was various workarounds you had to use. And back in May is, was when Google announced, okay, what we're doing now with Googlebot is it's going to stay up to date with the latest Chrome version, meaning that you can work on the assumption that pretty much anything someone can render in their browser that Googlebot will be able to do it, which was good news. Um, it didn't solve some of the issues that we still face, especially with JavaScript as SEOs in that there is still a big delay normally before JavaScript's processed. So it's not doing that on the fly as, as your browser does. And this just comes down to, this is a hugely resource intensive thing for Google to try and attempt and there's all kinds of it opens up all kinds of complexities I was having a conversation today with one of our developers about the various uh, security issues this raises for Google as well by actually running JavaScript on their end so there's there's ways that very clever people can kind of escape the sandbox and actually get into Google's network that side of things so hugely complicated area for them um so what this bit of news is that Google's actually told us that they're updating now the user agent for Googlebot. And what, what this means is if you haven't come across user agents before, basically your browser always sends uh, what's called a user agent when it's connecting to a website. It's essentially a string of text that says who they are and what they're using. So for instance, it'll tell, the, it'll tell you the browser and the operating system. So when you connect to a website, the user agent might say, hi, I'm the Firefox web browser and I'm running on Windows or I'm the Safari browser and I'm running on an iPhone. Now, as you can imagine, this is how robots.txt basically works. So the file you have on your website that sets the rules out for how robots are allowed to interact with your website operates using these user agents. So robots like uh, Google's Googlebot have names and you can specify rules in your robots.txt that only apply to specific robots. Or a lot of the case, we just use that wildcard asterisk in our robots.txt to say we want this to apply to all robots. So each of these different robots have different names. Uh, well, the good ones do. So obviously, if you did, if you made your own web bot, your own scraper, you don't actually have to make it send its identity across as a user agent. So they're kind of naughty bots because they're not really obeying then the, the robots. They, you know, it's very difficult for them to obey the robots.txt. But historically, again, Googlebot has had kind of this static string they use, which identifies them. And what Google is changing is it sounds incredibly minor, which is they're basically changing the version number of Googlebot to stay up to date to be reflective of the version of Chrome it's running, which makes you know absolute sense. However, um, Google said, we've run an evaluation, so we're confident that most websites will not be affected by this change. And when I did a little bit more investigation into this, there are some websites that are making decisions about how to display content based on the user agent they are detecting. 
So Google says uh, sites that follow our recommendations to use feature detection and progressive enhancement instead of user agent sniffing should continue to work without any changes. So I'll just dissect that for you very quickly. What they're saying there is if you are trying to detect the user agent of whoever's requesting the web page, this isn't really, or it has never been a recommended way to go about things. So Google goes on to say, if your site looks for a specific user agent, it may be affected. So there are apparently a non-insignificant amount of sites that kind of have this hard-coded string in where they're looking for Googlebot, um, which is kind of kind of a shoddy practice from day one looking at it that the version number of Googlebot will never change, which is obviously that's what version numbers are for to, to, to demonstrate, to show change. But it does, it does appear there are some sites that are doing this and they're showing content based on uh, what version of Googlebot or just if they, they're detecting Googlebot. So there's two recommendations here. The first is if for whatever reason you're stuck in so much technical debt that you can't get around doing it any other way apart from trying to detect the user agent, then you should roll back to just searching for the string Googlebot as your user agent. So saying, okay, I want to match this rule if somewhere in the user agent it says Googlebot rather than the whole previous string that identified Googlebot because that's what's going to be changing. So as soon as that changes, if you're using your static specific user agent of Googlebot, what you're doing will break. So that's one way around. You can just say, okay, check if the bot has Googlebot in it. The other way that Google's kind of recommending is this feature detection, which actually isn't specifically trying to identify who Googlebot is. What you're doing essentially is getting your website to check whatever is connecting to it, whatever browser is connecting to it, that it supports all of the required features to display the website as it should be displayed. Because if it, meet, if it meets these criteria, then actually there shouldn't be any reason to serve a different version of this page to the bot. If you detect specific features aren't supported, that's when you can have this fallback version for, for bots, which is kind of the, the, the recommendations Google's uh, going for. So Google has said that in their test of this, because I guess like all things Google's going to change, they probably just have like they take a chunk of the web and run it to see what happens to, to, to make sure it's doing what they want to do and there aren't any unforeseen consequences. They have said that they've had common issues while ev evaluating this change that include pages that present an error message instead of the normal page contents. For example, a page may assume Googlebot is a user with an ad blocker and accidentally prevent it from accessing page contents. So what's happening there is that they visited with the new user agent and the website's looking for this specific string of Googlebot, which obviously it doesn't match anymore. But then the website's worked out that Googlebot or whatever this thing is visiting the site, which it doesn't think is Googlebot, doesn't actually support everything that it wants to do. So in this case, show ads. So therefore it's coming to the termination that, oh, okay, it's not Googlebot, therefore it must be a user. I can't show ads. Therefore, it's a user that's trying to block ads, so I'm not going to show my content to them. 
And you've probably all seen those sites where you land and it says something like, hey, we've detected you're using an ad blocker. You need to turn this off if you want to see our content because that's how we pay for it. If your site or if a site's in that situation, it's going to be very bad because this user agent update will essentially mean you will block Google from seeing your content, which means it's not going to get indexed. Um, and if that content isn't in the index, obviously it's not going to rank. So that could be pretty bad. I will link to the Google Webmaster post that talks about the update of the user agent. They've got a link where uh, it gives you an explanation on how to force change your user agent so you can test your site as if you were the new Googlebot. So you can make sure that this isn't going to affect you. So if you heard whispers in your kind of IT team or if you're aware you're doing stuff with user agents, this is definitely a conversation that you want to have with your dev team. I also want to do a follow-up this episode on nofollow links. It was back in episode 27, so three episodes ago, we covered the change Google made where they firstly introduced two new types of, I guess you would call them two new types of nofollow link, which were rel sponsored and rel UGC. So when you want to mark links as they've been paid for, or if you want to mark links as, hey, these have been generated by a user, so we can't vouch for them. And obviously their previous, uh, which have been used for as a blanket for all these cases, which was rel no follow. And the big change they came out from with this was they're moving the no follow tag from basically a directive to a hint. So previously, whenever you have used a no follow tag, Google has always said, we will discount these links from our link graph. They're not going to carry any weight for search engines as you've marked them as, you know, either paid for or non-trusted links. So we're not going to use them. And that was very clear. It was over the last couple of years, we've seen various reports and some people certainly more audible than others talking about how they actually had seen some impact. And I'd seen this discussed mainly around local SEO. So talking about the, the map results where they were seeing actually if we were getting no follow links, it seems to be having a positive impact anyway. But the thing that interested me about this, and I've seen it, I saw it discussed actually on a webmaster hangout uh, before with John Mueller from Google, which was the use now of no follow links internally within a site. Google has previously kind of said it's, you know, not to do that, not in a way that they'll penalize you, but just it wasn't kind of best practice. And we're definitely getting mixed messages um, around that. So the, the webmaster hangout I'm referring to was where uh, John Mueller did actually put no follow forward as a suggestion of how to tackle some specific internal site issues. So I just want to talk about that because they've given us some extra clarity on this now. So there are cases with especially larger sites, and if we take like an e-commerce site as an example, where using nofollow links internally could be helpful. So with a small website, if you have products on that website and if you have like faceted navigation where you have different variations of products, you can order by size, by price, things like that, we all know that those 
small rejigs of pages are typically what we use the canonical tag for. So the canonical tag is again a hint, but it allows you to say to Google, look, this set of 10 pages, for instance, are just reordered versions of this main page that I want to rank. And this is a really helpful tag. It helps you rank a lot better. It tidies up loads of issues of multiple competing pages, uh, ranking, trying to rank against each other in the SERPs. It consolidates uh, link, uh, incoming link data. It's really, really helpful. However, there still exists a problem where other other means need to be used. So if you have a particularly large e-commerce site, so we will say, you know, in the tens of thousands of products, and also each of those products have multiple variations or at least different faceted navigation ways of accessing essentially the same information, but tweaked or different orders, etc. And if those facets are easily crawlable by Google, you have a situation where only a small percentage of the total amount of pages that are crawled are ones that you're interested in ranking. The other 90% of pages Google might be crawling are actually just the kind of trash versions that you're not interested in ranking. So the reordered pages or the filtered pages, things like that. So this becomes an issue in that if you just say, okay, we'll slap a canonical tag on there, it still raises the issue of Google trying to crawl these pages and kind of getting stuck down these very deep holes of hundreds of thousands of variations of pages before it eventually decides, I've, you know, your site, I've kind of had enough of it. It's about as important. I've, I've looked as far as I can do for how important I think your site is. So this becomes a, uh, a crawl budget problem, essentially, because Google has finite resources and at some point it's got to stop crawling your site and we all know that's partially based on how important your site is based on you know how many and how powerful these links are that come into your site as to how often regularly and deeply it's crawled so in these cases i've seen people with good success uh, use things like robots.txt and noindex to try and block off some of these rabbit holes that googlebot can go down because the end result is then um, Google is spending a long while, well, it's, it's actually discovering all of the kind of important core pages, it's spending longer on them, and they just tend to rank better. Now, I saw this answer because some people have been using nofollow links internally on their site to try and um, roadblock Google off from some of these, these avenues. And this is what kind of John Mueller got into it recently with, with some SEOs about how to use nofollow internally. So I'm just going to quote him now to, to give you what he said. So his answer was, it's not 100% defined, which is always helpful. It's not 100% defined, but the plan is to make it so that you don't have to make any changes so that we will continue to use these internal nofollow links as a sign that you're telling us one, these pages are not as interesting. Two, Google doesn't need to crawl them. And three, they don't need to be used for ranking for indexing. So what John is essentially saying there is it looks as if if you're using these nofollow links internally, they're almost always going to be counted as a 
as a directive. There's still a hint, I guess, technically, but it looks like because they're being used internally, Google's taking that as a very strong hint that these pages perhaps don't need to be crawled. And he actually does clarify that and says, so it's not 100% directive like robots.txt, where you say these are never going to be crawled, but it does tell us we don't need to focus on them as much. So to me, that's saying this is still a very valid way to control how larger sites are being crawled. And actually, it doesn't have to be a case of one or the other. So you can still use canonical tags on these variation pages. So if Google does land on them, it's still getting that hint that it's a it's not a canonical page because it's got this tag on. But it is saying if you've got this easily crawlable, fast-hit navigation, that nofollow would still likely be a good shout to control how Google is crawling the site. Okay, so this episode we have actually got some time to do some Q&A, which is good because I put the I put the form out on Twitter and I think on LinkedIn as well just to invite people to ask questions if they have any questions about SEO or PPC because we do get quite a few actually I get asked quite a few sometimes through LinkedIn or through Twitter and it can be hard to give people the full and kind of correct answer very shortly because a lot of the time you know there's that thing about it depends is normally the best short SEO answer and probably in PPC a lot of the time as well so it is it is helpful uh, if we can sort of talk these through so I'm going to do, I think we've got time for probably a couple of questions. So the first question we had was from Shannon. I've no idea who Shannon is. (laughs) So you can submit these questions anonymously or tell us your name, tell us where you're from. So uh, Shannon asks, what's the best way to structure your PPC account slash campaigns for franchise businesses with multiple locations? And this, Rob, is why you are here. So I can now just look in your direction uh, for an answer to that. So what is the best way to structure PPC accounts or campaigns for franchise businesses with multiple locations, Bob? Well, Shannon, the answer is it depends. (laughs) Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) I'm joking. Um, When you say franchise, I'm going to assume that you are a part of a franchise or that you oversee a group of franchisees within the overall franchise. And I think the first thing to consider is how you would administrate that from a pay-per-click perspective Um, because presumably the franchise um, comprises multiple stores or branches or whatever your franchise is. Um, So I think the main question is, are you going to take ownership of the marketing for each franchisee and cover all of their costs um, or are you going to leave the pay-per-click marketing in the hands of each branch? Um, I'm guessing that's not an issue, but I just thought it was an interesting question to raise um so in my opinion if i were a franchise or i owned a franchise it would make sense for me to centralize everything so that all the marketing has a clear message otherwise you're going to get disparate messaging and pay-per-click advertising techniques amongst different parts of the franchise um, which in my opinion would be a bit of a headache Um, and if you've franchised your own business then i'm guessing that the success of the various franchisees is going to impact your own gross profit. So I would want to retain control and um, control the marketing for all of the various franchisees within 
the franchise, um, which actually might also be a selling point for selling the franchise to potential investors who are wanting to set up. You know, we take care of all of the marketing. Um, so I've probably gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but I just thought it was an interesting one to consider. And for when it comes to administrating that, there's two methods. The first is using one single Google Ads account where you'd have various campaigns controlling the different franchisees and the different locations that they service. And the second one would be to have a separate Google Ads account for each franchisee or branch, which is controlled or managed or overseen via a central MCC, which stands for My Client Center, which is uh, it's, it's a tool that most digital agencies use to manage multiple client accounts. So doing it that way as well would mean that each individual franchisee uses their own payment information, right? Because it's essentially then they've all got their own account. Whereas if you had one Google account, I assume that means everything's got to be paid for by one person. Potentially. Um, you could pay for everything under the same roof. There's mm -hmm. no, you know, really big brands. I'm just trying to think of a really big franchise like um, KFC, for example, is a huge franchise comprised of multiple branches. Um, it might be that they have a single MCC mm. that controls many different accounts, but which is all paid for under the same. But it gives you that option, right? Of do course. You, yeah, do you have the option to have multiple different, say, cards for payment if you use the one yeah, Google account? Absolutely. Yeah. Or you can use the same payment card or even invoicing. It might be that you just ge generate one invoice mm. for each, for all of the franchisees within that one MCC. I think, um, I mean, I don't know who who Shannon is and on what the franchise is, but I'm probably guessing that an MCC may be overkill okay. in this case. It's probably a case of um, multiple branches which could potentially be controlled via a single account. If I've got the wrong end of the stick, though, and I'm speaking to the colonel from KFC or, or <laughs> yeah. whoever, then um, it might be that an MCC where each franchisee has its own separate account because each franchisee has its own budget. Um, perhaps the manager of that franchisee, am I using the right word there, franchisee? Um, perhaps the manager of each branch um, has their own budget and they pay for the marketing and they're responsible, in which case perhaps having an MCC, an, override, an overall um, top-level view of every account is the way forward. Okay. Um, having said that, that's not really answered the question, which is how should you, how should you structure your account? So, um, so many different ways of doing it, but am I right in saying that, um, a franchise is predominantly location based? So that'd be fair. Yeah. Unless it's an online franchise, maybe, um, which I guess is a different, a whole yeah, other, I, I haven't really thought about that really in terms of online because yeah, historically the franchises I've worked with before are they're they're given like a territory exactly yeah so i don't know how so i work online i would say that the best of anything that's location based where you're covering a specific area so if you've got multiple franchisees within your franchise brand each franchisee is going to cover a specific geographic area so to me it would make sense in your google ads account to structure your campaigns by location. Um, now, you could really you could go into so much detail here, 
Um, but I'm guessing if you're managing a franchise, then your time is limited. And if you've drawn the pay-per-click short straw, you're not going to want to be managing hundreds and hundreds of pay-per-click campaigns. Um, but when we talk about pay-per-click campaigns, um, really a campaign should relate to the goal of that activity. So I'm going to use an example of um, a car garage, for example. Um, you may sell MOTs and you may sell general car servicing. Well, those are two different products, really, two different goals, two different services, so that, to me, uh, warrants two separate campaigns. Um, now, if you're a franchise that has branches in different locations, in my opinion, each location as well should be a separate campaign. So you might service an area in Scotland, and you may offer MOTs, and you may, have a, may offer general car servicing. So car servicing and MOTs, um, you'd have two campaigns for Scotland. Um, and then if you also have a branch in Essex doing exactly the same thing, you'd have a campaign for Essex and a camp, but you'd have two campaigns for Essex, one doing MOTs and one doing car servicing. But you can get really granular with this. And um, I'm, I'm probably guilty of having, um, being a bit of a, a campaign um, I, I like my campaigns, basically, <laughs> so, to put it politely. And um, I could see you searching for a word there. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I I use campaigns to siphon spend towards search terms that are the core search terms that work really well that consistently drive leads. But as I say, if you're busy and if you're not a full time pay per click manager, that might be overkill. Um, I would also, so just, I suppose just to backtrack, what I'm saying is I would have a campaign for each location and I'm presuming that the location relates to the specific franchise branch and I would have a campaign dedicated as well in addition to location for the specific service that the franchise offers. Um, that makes sense. And then obviously if it is a larger franchise, that's when you'd start thinking about using the MCCs because I can imagine that if you've got half a dozen or a dozen services and then lots of areas, it's going to get quite unwieldy yeah. quite quickly. But if time is at a premium, which I'm guessing it is because everyone's really busy, <laughs> um, an MCC will probably add just an additional element of management on top. Yeah, You'll need to make sure that you don't double serve. And double serving is when you're showing adverts, uh, more than one advert in the search results for the same search query. And I'm not talking about if you're an e-commerce website and you have a shopping advert showing at the same time as a text advert. I'm, show I'm talking about having two text adverts showing at the same time for the same search query to the same person. So if someone typed in car MOTs, they could have your advert show twice, one at the top and one underneath. Yeah, Google doesn't like that. Um, and that's a massive form of pay-per-click black hat marketing, which Google frowns upon. Pay-per-click does have black hat marketing. It's not that, just limited a, to SEO. That's a whole other podcast. I think that's, yeah, I want to get into that. <laughs> I want to get into it right it's now. It's interesting, but, but no. Let's talk about that safer. after this. And then I think that that would make maybe a couple of cool uh, shows if we mm. do one on black hat SEO and you sure. can bring your black hat bag of, of course. shady PPC not tricks that I to the table. Them, but I've had to deal with other agencies that have and have reported them to Google. <laughs> it's all very interesting. It's all very fun. But anyway, um, 
yeah, if you have an MCC and you're managing a franchise and it's a location-based franchise with various branches in different regions and you're using an MCC, just be very careful that your various accounts are really limited to the areas. You don't want adverts overlapping with one another, which to be honest, bearing in mind various updates to location targeting settings that Google has implemented recently, is quite likely could potentially happen. So you just need to yeah, keep we spoke, your wits we've spoken about, about that, haven't yeah. we? The um, the default settings, the location. We keep banging on about it, but if you haven't heard about it, it's helpful. So the default location targeting setting is not only if you're in that area, it's if you've shown an interest in that area. So you can technically be kind of anywhere, but if you've done a search for that place, you're then eligible for those ads. So the double serving thing is is actually if you've got the defaults left on, mm. quite a likely scenario, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. by accident yeah i mean a given example let's just say you're a barbers that's based in soho and you're advertising to people in soho who are looking for hairdressers someone might be on might live in soho but they may have gone to india temporarily for a holiday and they're looking for a hairdressers in india and then they type in hairdressers and then they're shown an advert for hairdressers in soho well it's, it's quite far away from soho because yeah the previous previous history so you just just need to keep your wits about you and look at your location data um and that's something else to bear in mind if you're a franchise is to just make sure if it's very important if the location that you're targeting is important just take a look at your location traffic and make sure that you're not getting traffic from places where you know your 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 branch isn't going to be able to service make sure you're excluding that and only targeting the areas that matter to you I want to do uh, one more question. And this one actually came up uh, from an article. I believe it was the article on Search Engine Roundtable. And someone asked me this on LinkedIn. So this was from Matthew Mountain, who says, I hear that HTML sitemaps are of no use anymore. What are your thoughts on this? And he was actually referencing there was an article entitled Google, HTML sitemaps not worthwhile for SEO purposes, was the the title of the post. Um, if you if you read the post, it sort of says what I'm about to say, but I want to frame this because I think that title is, I think they're a bit guilty of being a bit misleading with that to make it sound a bit more interesting than it really is. So the title suggests that if you have an on-site sitemap, that this is going to have no SEO benefit. Now, of course, the correct answer is it depends. <laughs> But I want to go through a couple of things here to to because I think it deserves just opening up and talking about. So in terms of sitemaps, you've essentially got two options, which is kind of the official XML external sitemap, which is when you provide an external .xml file, which is in a specific format that lists all of the important pages of your site and most major search engines support these and they will use it in their discovery and their kind of ranking of importance of pages on your site. That's fine. From antiquity, we have the HTML sitemap, which is a kind of a rare beast nowadays, which was normally a page that would be called sitemap on your site. And it would essentially be a list of all of the pages of your site that you can click towards which 
I used to actually find quite useful when sites were a bit rubbish because you'd just go to the site map, hit control F, type the name of the page you're looking mm. for. I still find myself navigating to those pages when they exist on a site. Yeah. I'm a big fan of them. To it's really sure. interesting. All, the, all this time and money and effort goes into design and people are like, just give me the list of pages yeah. and I'll find it. Yeah, so this so this headline says, HTML sitemaps not worthwhile for SEO purposes. So the first thing I want to get across to you as a thought is an HTML sitemap is not any kind of special page. Okay, it's just like any other page on your site. It's just an HTML page with links. Okay, so we now live in a time where search engines are pretty good at discovering the different pages on your site. And if you have a website, I would say that is good for users, which means you've thought about the navigation structure and you've thought about, you know, useful pages not being 14 clicks away, then these search engines will easily find all of the pages on your site and there is essentially no need for a sitemap an html sitemap because you're already you've done the job of an html sitemap so the job of an html sitemap was kind of twofold which is one it was to give search engines an easy route to all the pages on your site and the second uh, benefit of an html sitemap was you could specify the anchor text so the anchor text is the text in the link that describes the page you're going to. So it might, you know, say accessories or products or homepage. It tells you the name of the page you're going to. And search engines use anchor text to help them understand what the next and following page is about. They're less reliant on it than they used to be externally from other sites, but they still lean on it very heavily internally. So this did give you the option to do that. And they, it was very helpful, especially when search engines basically weren't as good at getting around websites because you could be like look here's a really simple html page you can't go wrong with it it's nothing flashy it just works because now as a community of web developers and seos and because of the technology progression of the crawlers this generally isn't a problem anymore it's very rare that you encounter websites where search engines just can't get around them if you've got a well-structured main menu on your page that's essentially a list of links with anchor text, just as a as a sitemap would be. So to say that an HTML sitemap is of no use, it's not worthwhile, I don't think is true because if you had a site that was awful, right, and Google or Bing or whatever struggle getting to all the pages, having an HTML sitemap would definitely help you because you would be you would be giving the context of those pages and you'd be showing it around. If you already, if you're in a situation where you need an HTML sitemap, then quite frankly, your website probably sucks <laughs> and your SEO is terrible and you shouldn't be trying to think of that as the solution. Like, oh, our website's terrible. Um, users can't get around it. Search engines can't get around it. I know I'll put a sitemap page on. So I can fully understand Google's statement of basically, look, don't, you know, a sitemap isn't going to magically fix anything for SEO purposes. If you need one, you've probably got way, way bigger problems that you need to tackle. And I think that's what I want to get across in that it's not that they've been devalued. I think they, they're just treated and they always have been treated as normal pages. Google hasn't flicked a switch recently to say, oh, HTML sitemaps aren't worthwhile anymore. It's just that we've grown past needing them. And if you do need one, you've got issues. <laughs> 
Okay, that's everything we've got time for on this episode. Thank you again, Rob, for joining me and answering PVC questions. And I look forward to our Black Hat PVC episode. So we are going to do that and we'll talk about that later. Um, We are going to be back on October the 14th. So Monday, October the 14th with our next episode. You can get all of the links to everything we've spoken about on this episode at our show notes, which are at search.withcanda.co.uk. And I hope you will tune in next week. Have a great week.